In an essay he wrote about the 2000 presidential election, David Foster Wallace offered a description of authentic leadership. A real leader can get can somehow get us to do certain things that deep down we think are good and want to be able to do but usually can't get ourselves to do on our own. Deep down, you almost always like how a real leader makes you feel, how you find yourself working harder and pushing yourself and thinking in ways you wouldn't be able to if there weren't this person you respected and believed in and wanted to please. In other words, a real leader is somebody who can help us overcome the limitations of our individual laziness and selfishness and weakness and fear and get us to do better, harder things than we can get ourselves to do on our own. I like that description. A leader makes us feel better, but not feeling better for the sake of feeling better, but feeling better for the sake of finally being able to do those things we know should be done, but can't manage to make ourselves do them without some help. We all need leaders who can do those kinds of things for us. And so I wonder, who has been that kind of leader for you? Who is now? Your mother, your father, your grandmother, your grandfather? A friend of your mom's or dad's? Your football coach or your tennis instructor or your choir conductor or your band director? Maybe for you, as for me, a seventh grade social studies teacher or a college English professor or a church Bible study leader? A mentor or an advisor, a counselor or a therapist? A boss who took an interest in you early on in your career? A minister who was there for you at a pivotal time in your life. We, we all need and many of us can give thanks for these people who came alongside of us and helped us to do what we most deeply wanted to do but couldn't manage to do on our own. They helped us to overcome our inertia and get on our way toward the kind of life God intends for us to behave. To have. Good leaders have those qualities in common. They help us to believe that our world can be better than it is and that we can be better than we are. They help us to claim our talents and gifts. They prod us to take risks and they encourage us to see failure not as a verdict but as a teacher. And so whether these leaders hold official positions or not, whether they're recognized by others or known only by us, real leaders help us do what we most need and want to do. 
They won't let us settle. They won't let us settle for the status quo. But instead, call us to be fully and joyfully alive. Ephesians 4, which we've heard this morning, is in part about leaders and leadership in the church. And verses 11 through 13 quickly summarize who some of those leaders are. Paul said the gifts Christ gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, these leaders in the community of faith. Some church leaders, Paul said, are like apostles. They are men and women whose experience with Jesus is so immediate, so immediate, that their minds reflect his light and their hearts radiate his warmth. There's an authenticity, there's an authenticity about them, an urgency about them, which comes from their experience with Jesus. Their experience with Jesus seems so fresh and immediate that to be with these people is to feel like we're in his company, too. Some, Paul says, are like prophets. They are able to discern the sometimes subtle intersections between the ways of the world and the word of God. They have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to feel and mouths to articulate the signs of God's presence everywhere. And they're able to help us see those signs of God's presence everywhere. Some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists. These evangelists are such trustworthy embodiments of good news. They are such magnetic magnetic examples of faith, hope, and love that they simply by the way they are in the world attract people to themselves and therefore attract people to Jesus. Still others, Paul says, are pastors and teachers. It's one office and it's the office most often associated with church leadership, pastoral work. Some are pastors and teachers. They have a a tender and tenacious concern for the people entrusted to their care. They combine compassion and wisdom, truth tempered with love, love strengthened by truth. So Paul tells us about some of the leaders we have in church, and then he tells us, what these leaders are called to do. He says they are called to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that the saints all together can build up the body of Christ and to help people become like Jesus. That little word, equipping, is worth paying another minute's attention to. Equipping involves, of course, training, The kind of training where you help people turn their gifts into skills, their talents into practices, their passions into actions, their concerns into disciplines. Training involves helping people learn to do what you've asked them to do. And church leadership involves often 
helping people learn to do the things the church needs for them to do and that they feel called to do. But we don't come pre-equipped to do all these things. We need some training. That's important. But this little word, equipping, has a whole other field of meaning that I think is richly significant for us. It comes from a family of Greek words which describe, among other things, the setting of broken bones during surgery or the sewing closed of a gaping wound or a filling up what is lacking in a container or in a life or a shoring up of what is weak, providing braces and support for what is weak. You can tell that this part of the family of the word equipping has to do with restoration and healing and strengthening. It's a family of words that makes an appearance in the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus calls his early disciples, you know, most of the early disciples, fisher folk, He comes on a couple of fishermen, James and John, who are washing the boats that belong to their father, and they are, Matthew says, mending their nets. And that that phrase, mending their nets, is the same family of words as this word equipping. You know, nets were too expensive to just throw away if a tear came in them. They needed to be knit back together. So when Paul says that pastor teachers have as part of their work equipping people, Paul says a pastor teacher needs to pay special attention to people who have had rips and tears come into their lives which have made them feel like they may be useless now. But instead of tossing them aside, reweave, mend again what is torn and ripped so that what seemed perhaps to be useless becomes useful again. Reweave, set a broken bone, strengthen what is weak, brace up what is faltering, work for the healing of people in the church so that everyone knows that everyone has a place. Real leaders do all those things. Real leaders do all those things David Foster Wallace said. They inspire us to do what we might not do on our own. They motivate us to overcome our inertia. They make us feel better about ourselves. Real leaders do what Paul said. They train us to take up tasks we're not quite prepared for. But I think the heart and soul of real leadership is this work of healing, of restoring, of knitting back together of helping people who feel stuck and stymied to get on their feet again.
In fact, I've been thinking this week in connection with this text about a very familiar story in Mark's gospel where Jesus does just that. He restores the capacity of a man stuck and stymied, paralyzed in other words, restores the capacity of a stuck and stymied man to get back on his feet and walk back into his life. You know that story. It's in Mark 2 if you want to look at it later. Jesus has been on a a brief little ministry tour outside of his hometown, but he's back home now, staying probably in the house of friends. He wants a little R&R before he starts again, but people hear that he's in town, and they won't leave him alone. So he opens the door of the house where he intended to rest. The crowds form, and the crowds bring with them a variety of needs. Many needs for healing and restoration. The crowds form so quickly that one man who desperately needed the restoration Jesus offered wasn't able to get anywhere close to the house. You remember this story. So his friends ingeniously put their paralyzed friend on a a mat, went up on the roof of the house, removed the tiles of the house, and lowered the paralyzed man right down in front of Jesus. And I hope you're able to laugh a little at this scene and to delight in the ingenuity of these friends. How would you feel if you'd been sitting in the room and suddenly flakes from the roof start falling down and then a man is let down on a mat in front of you? I'd like to think that after Jesus brushed the dust off his forehead and out of his eyes, he laughed out loud at the audaciousness of it all. But then something even more audacious occurs. Jesus looks at the man and said, Son, your son, your sins be forgiven you. Now I think we can forgive the man who has just been forgiven for wondering if Jesus knew why he was there. He was there for frozen legs that he wanted unfrozen. He he didn't go to all that trouble. His friends didn't go to all that trouble to have sins forgiven. There was the temple for that. And there were some critics present, always critics present with Jesus, who asked each other, who is this that claims to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. This man is a blasphemer. So Jesus, discerning what these critics are saying, understanding the frustration and disappointment of the paralyzed man, says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he turned to the paralyzed man and says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And the man got up and walked. It may be hard for us to relate to the man's physical paralysis. But I don't think it's hard for us to identify with the feeling of being immobilized. I know people who are 
constantly on the run in their lives who are immobilized. In fact, they may be in motion incessantly, but their emotions and spirits are paralyzed. These people are capable, so capable, but somehow caged, bright, but nonetheless bound, strong, but trapped. I know people who live in the straitjacket of other people's expectations and opinions. They're so desperately needy of other people's approval. They so intensely crave other people's affirmation that they surrender their own dreams. They sacrifice their own hopes. They squelch their own ideas in order to do, be, or say whatever it is others want and need for them to do, be, and say because they can't move. They're stuck. Unless they hear another one say, attaboy, girl." They're stuck. They can't make any progress toward their own honest-to-God lives. And there are some people who are chained and constrained by addictions of various kinds, not just the ones that we tend to focus on, drugs and alcohol, but addiction to work or to food or to the Internet. What's going on? Well, people are seeking distraction from the gnawing anxiety that they feel or fleeting fulfillment for this yearning emptiness they have or temporary relief from the loneliness that aches within them. And so they, we, turn to these other substances or processes to deal with this anxiety, this emptiness, this loneliness, And what we turn to helps for a moment. It doesn't last, but it helps for a moment. And because it helps at all, they go back again and again and again and more and more until there's a trap. The answer is more work, more drink, more drugs, more food, more more whatever. Stuck. Chained, constrained by addiction. And I simply need to acknowledge that there are some people who are bound by, and I I just, I don't know how else to put it, bound by bad and bogus religion. They worship a God who has a hair trigger temper, makes harsh demands, is always displeased, loads them down with shame and guilt. Their God, in other words, bears no resemblance to the God we see revealed in Jesus, but it's the God they think or fear they have anyway. And here's something I've learned. Maybe you learned it a long time ago, but I'm learning recently that if your view of God is distorted, diseased, unhealthy, if you're devoted to a God who isn't like Jesus, if you're devoted to a God who isn't like Jesus, 
then the more religious you are, the worse it is for you. The more faithful you are to a false god, the worse it is for your life. So there are people who are nearly fanatically faithful to a little tin god. And their faithfulness is enslaving them rather than liberating them. I'm simply saying there are all kinds of ways of being stuck and stymied, including being paralyzed by shame and guilt. And I think we know what it's like to feel hemmed in, mired up, stuck, paralyzed. What I want us to realize is that the reason we call Jesus Lord which, by the way, is a 17th century way, comes to us from the King James Version. It's a 17th century way of saying leader. The reason we call Jesus leader and Lord of our lives is because we understand that he's the real thing. He leads us out of whatever it is that holds us in, holds us down, holds us back, locks us up, chains us down. He leads us out. He leads us out into the kind of freedom where we run and dance with God in the life God means for us to have. And all the rest of those verses surrounding the text in Ephesians that we're talking about this morning, what Paul is describing is the kind of faith community in which the healing Jesus offers becomes the healing leaders exercise becomes the healing we extend to each other. We call him Lord and we learn to live as him because we know that in him we find freedom, healing, strength, restoration, joy. So while I've been working on this sermon, I've been thinking about the refrain of a little John Meyer song. It goes simply like this. I'm in repair. I'm in repair, not together, but I'm getting there. I love the simplicity of that. I'm in repair. I'm not together, but I'm getting there. Friends, the great gift we have in Jesus and the great gift we have in Christian community is... We are part of a fellowship in which all of us are or may be in repair. All the brokenness, all the heartbreak, all the paralysis, all the feeling of being stuck and stymied and burdened, all of that can be in repair. It takes a while. We're not all together yet, but 
but we're getting there. And thanks be to God for the healing and the healer by which we get there. Amen.